You're listening to the Haney Company Financial Guy Show. No nonsense, just a crazy mix of life, business, the funny, and of course we're going to talk about your money. But just sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. What could go wrong? Welcome to another episode of the Haney Company Financial Guy podcast. I am your host, Mr. Financial Guy himself, Brian Haney, and I am here with an association friend of mine, Mr. Scott Ozer. Scott, how are you? I am doing well, Brian. It's good to good to hear you. I guess not see you. Good to hear you. Yeah, I mean, you know, the 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 screen version is is still okay, but I got to tell you, I'm, I'm sure you're a little bit like me, where I'm definitely getting worn out with only seeing people over a computer screen, and I'm I'm certainly excited for that to hopefully change later on in this year. Fingers crossed. Yeah, me as well. I'm also getting tired of having the uh, spotlight in my face to get on Zoom all the time. It's like I, I know I could adjust my office a little bit to get more natural light in here, but I feel like I spend half the day with this ring light just staring me in the face. And after a while, I kind of go, we got to either go per- face-to-face, like real face-to-face, or we got to go back to phone again, man. It's like one of the two. <laughs> I'm tired of having this Zoom light in my face all day. I know, isn't that funny where, where the idea of actually just having a regular phone conversation where you don't see somebody seems appealing now? <laughs> I love it when people say to me, hey, let's just talk on the phone. I'm like, that's perfect. As you and I were joking about before we sort of started, like no shaving. I can keep my sweatshirt on, you know, and nothing, nothing against getting dressed up for business, but it is nice to just talk every once in a while. No, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I was doing a lot of online presentations and you know the running joke was I, I i wanted to always find out in the audience how many of you are actually wearing pants today right because usually that that's a statistical likelihood that it's not the entire audience but anyway not to digress too much i, I always want to make sure that i get the hardest questions out right up front so we'll, we'll do it fast and furious because i know you're a pro if you could live anywhere in the world for a year with no considerations for cost, et cetera. Where would you like to live? I, I thought about this for a little bit and I was going to say where I live now, but I guess that's not kind of, that's not real fair. And it's not, it's sort of rubbing it in the face. I, I joke a little bit about when people say, Hey, how's the weather? You moved out to Southern California. How's the weather there? Now my ongoing answer is I, I'm not going to tell you how the weather is because 90% of the people I talk to are just going to get mad because they're in Chicago or they're in DC <laughs> or they're in somewhere else. And they go, that weather sounds perfect. I'm like, well, I, you know, one of the reasons we moved here to Southern California was so that we could have perfect weather. But I would say if I had to live somewhere for a year, I would love to live in Hawaii for a while. I, I feel like it's comparable to where I am now but just having it a little bit more rural than where we are now would be very nice for a year. I don't know if I could do it long-term because as we get older, we need more things um, and more services, but it would be nice to be there for about a year, I would say. I like that. And it's funny, I ask these questions so often that I do spend time myself thinking about them. And one of the things that I, I always think about is, you know, it's kind of that demystification of that vacation spot where would it be that much different if you're living somewhere that you'd like to go vacation because then you realize it's not a vacation anymore? So I think it's probably my answer to this very same question has probably changed a little bit as well. I, I mean, Hawaii is certainly on, on, on the short list. Um, yeah, I would like it if we, could, if we could say, if you could live anywhere for a year and not work, where would you like to live? Because you're yeah. exactly right. It's like doing what I do. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about what I do in a little bit. So I'm not going to go into that now. Doing what I do, I would still bring my office with me. And so we would still spend part of the day inside, just like we're doing now. And so some of those nice locations and nice weather spots aren't as attractive if you are going to be working for eight or nine hours a day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Next one. If you could be a superhero and have one superpower, what superpower would you like to have? I would like to be able to fly. I think that being able to, especially with the world we live in now, being able to just get around and see people and do things easily without having to book flights and do everything else would be nice. I was going to say super speed, but I think that the flight is just, it's, it's easier to be able to just pop up and get places, which would be really nice right about now. So it, it, that's hilarious to me because the, that's, that's also my number one and the super speed that you mentioned is my number two. So it's funny. I, I guess we are superhero kindred spirits. I was not aware of that. Glad I asked this question. It's really important. 
<laughs> All right. Would you rather visit underwater, like under the sea, or outer space? I would have to say I would rather be underwater. I just, I feel like there is so much more to, it would be really, really cool because not many people have gone to outer space. But I think that just the sights to see on a consistent basis would be much better under the water. So I would much rather have things to see and more to experience than just the vastness of outer space. So underwater is my answer. I like that. I always love and I grew up loving 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and those types of stories. So I'm with you. It feels like it's just like a fascinating world and and still underexplored as not obviously out of spaces as well. But uh, all right. I like that. And I mean, and I'd, I'd also I'd also like to talk to mermaids and mermen a lot more than I would like to talk to aliens, I think. I mean, we're all under this perception, right, that aliens are bad. So why would I want to have an opportunity to chat to those guys? I'd rather talk to Nemo and, you know, things like that. That sounds like a lot more enjoyable. I, I agree with that as well. Yeah, I, I, I'm not I'm not overly uh, optimistic about positive alien encounters or I, I'm more comfortable that the undersea situation is probably going to be at least friendlier at least i would hope you know i mean i, I, agree. I mean aquaman seems pretty awesome so <laughs> <laughs> all right last one besides this podcast of course what other podcasts would you like to recommend to our audience i, I struggle with this one because i listen to a number of business or professional focused podcasts, but the ones that I really enjoy most are honestly for personal reasons. They're more fun and um, they have to do with exercise and nutrition and things like that. So the one that I actually listen to most regularly, and this could be a long story that I'm going to keep short just for time. There is a new ish device called a whoop. It's actually W H O O P. And a lot of the professional athletes are using it now. I got turned on to it about six months ago and they have a podcast where they just interview interesting, cool people that, that they could be anything from a fireman to a former Navy captain to a professional athlete. They do a lot of interviews with how they're structuring their lives, what they're struggling with, what they're succeeding with and how it goes into your body. Because I really feel that as we all get older, it's going to be more and more important, or it is more and more important to focus what on what we're putting into it and what we're doing with it. And not to be over the top and crazy anal about, okay, I can only eat this, 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 and this, but to be able to focus on those things. So that's sort of my, my way of keeping the, in some ways, the work-life balance in place. So if you're, if anybody out there listening is into health and nutrition, the WHOOP podcast. Again, I know it sounds really, really weird, but it's pretty cool. It's W-H-O-O-P is one that, and I think they come out like every couple of weeks. And so it's not overkill where it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. I do listen to some, you know, association marketing podcasts as well. But if I had to recommend one and you're into doing something personal and for your own health, that's a really good one. I love it. Now, so I'm using that as an opportunity to plug my wife's blog so we, we eat pretty well, but we're very, very interested in nutrition and specifically what you just said, which is paying more attention to what you do put into your body, right? Because, uh, you know, the old, the old saying goes, you are what you eat. And that's, I think, a lot more true than people realize. So I love that. I, I mean, I, I, I'm going to have to check this one out. And uh, my wife's blog talks a lot about that. So for, for also the audience and for you as well, you probably didn't know this, uh, she's the crazy health lady which is one of my favorite things to be able to say. So crazyhealthlady.com, because uh, she's had a, a pretty wild uh, health experience that she's now sharing uh, about, uh, you know, almost dying from a uh, intestinal disorder and, and now, you know, coming out of that and not even being on medications, drugs, et cetera, all because she's refined diet. I think it's so important. And I think even though this is, this is tangential and we will actually get into, you know, our topic of conversation. I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned it because I think the pandemic probably has highlighted a lot of this stuff in terms of, you know, just personal health and taking maybe a little bit of stock as to how, how can we make ourselves as healthy as humanly possible if we're going to have to fight off something like a COVID or whatever, right? You know, how this really is important. Health is in many respects a luxury and hopefully a lot more people are, are now better connected to that and a little bit more mindful about that. 
Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm definitely going to have to check out your wife's blog because I'm always interested in reading that stuff. Whoop actually did some interesting things around COVID as well because they have data from so many people. And so they were able to earlier, earlier on, they were able to say, okay, if this changed, then you may be at risk for COVID. So they were actually tracking a lot of that data. Wow. And so it was really kind of cool the way they, they obviously did it backwards, right? They couldn't have done it and predicted what it would happen. But as people started to get it, they were able to review their data and analyze and say, what was the common denominator? And they found pretty much that your respiratory rate, not your resting heart rate, but your rate of your respiratory rate, if it jumped out of its normal range. So they did it based on, on the normal, on the people's normal range. So let's say mm-hmm. you were 52 to 55 normally, and all of a sudden your respiratory rate was 65. Well, then they suggested that you go see a doctor because you may be at risk because that's just abnormal. It doesn't happen. And that was the common denominator that they shared across the board. So they did kind of some cool stuff. That is fascinating. Yeah. And in, in, in our world of metadata, while you know, I, I, I think it's a challenging line to walk in terms of data privacy and all that, I think it's it is also fascinating how you know helpful and useful some of this stuff can be when we channel it correctly. So with with that not really a good segue. Let's, let's get into you now and your professional expertise, which I'm excited about. Um, so go ahead, tell, tell the audience about yourself, what do you do, and, and what your specialty is. Sure, thanks. I actually have been in the association space. I would consider myself, I, I'd say that I am an association executive, even though I am now a consultant, so I don't actually work for an association. I work very closely with a number of associations doing membership marketing, really marketing as a whole. Anything that an association might want to market, I help them with their strategy. I do some implementation, um, whether that be their annual conference, whether it be membership recruitment, retention, engagement. And then the other side of my business is we help grow non-dues revenue by taking over the ads, exhibits, and sponsorship sales function. So I used to do that as a staff person for about 10 years, and then I launched my own business, um, which as a marketer, I kind of laughed that I creatively named it Scott Oser Associates. It didn't come up with anything much better than that, but it is pretty much me, and I've got some people that help me on, on specialty areas. But so, so I am, we are Scott Oser Associates, and we do ads, exhibits, and sponsorship sales, and then membership and marketing. Well, from from someone who works at the Haney Company, I, I appreciate those that uh, that have some name recognition associated with their business. So I, I like it. As somebody, obviously, we, we know each other. We go decently well back in the ASAE space, the association community. What's What's been your favorite part of just being in this industry and in this community for, for as long as you have been? I think you just nailed it in the one word that you said, which is community. I actually, my career trajectory, I was in associations doing what I consider sort of your traditional association roles for about five years when I first started. So I was the membership guy and the marketing guy for a couple of different associations. And then, and during that time, I played around and volunteered quite a bit with ASAE. And this was, for those of you who remember, this will date me a little bit, but this is when GWSAE actually used to exist. So I used to do a lot of volunteering with GWSAE too. And that's where I really started my career. That's where I started my network. That's where I started my community. And it was fantastic because people were very open, very friendly, very helpful. Um, And then I went over to the American Association for the Advancement of Science, which is Science Magazine, and National Geographic, which is, I'm sure National Geographic is probably more familiar to most people. But I was still in the association space, but I was really, really focusing on circulation and publishing a lot more. So I got more involved with like the Magazine Publishers Association. And I didn't completely abandon ASAE and GWSAE, but I did take a step out for a period of time because I only had so much time on my hand. And that was really where the ROI was. But when I decided to go out on my own, I jumped right back into ASAE and every, it was like, I never left. Everybody was so unbelievably helpful. And so, you know, where have you been? There was not a, well, you left this industry. Now you're back and now you want to be friends again, kind of issue. So um, I would say it really is the community. I mean, that's how you and I met through volunteer roles. And it's just, it's really nice to have not to be cheesy, but it's nice to have a home that you can go to meetings and see people that you know, and you can go to now we can do virtual conversations and connections and just have people that you know, and that you get along with. And that I mean, 
I consider many of my colleagues, many of my people in my network actually friends. And so when I get to the point where I can retire, it's going to be a bummer to not be able to see people on a regular basis. And, and I don't think everybody feels that way about the association world or about the industry that they, that they work in and play in, but I definitely do. So I would say that is the biggest thing. Now, and, and I'm so glad you used that last word friends, because I say that a lot. And I think sometimes it's funny when I, when I say in a conversation, say at home with my wife or something like that, I say my friend, so-and-so, and my wife kind of always looks at me, she's like, you know that person professionally. And I'm like, well, yes, that's true. But to your point, like it is, it is an unbelievable community dynamic where I, I like you consider these relationships, albeit through a professional lens, to be friends, to be people that, you know, I would choose to spend time with outside of the industry context and people I know like trust and respect. And it is, it's, it's funny because, uh, you know, I'm sure you know this a little bit, uh, since I work with my father, who's, uh, an ASAE fellow and has been in the association space my whole life. It's, it's very interesting. I almost consider myself like a second generation kind of ASAE person because I, you know, and this was the awkward part as we started to work together back, you know, when we got, you know, kind of our, our partnership going many years ago, it's kind of running into occasionally people are like, oh, I remember you when you were this tall and that kind of stuff. Where <laughs> I have, I've literally seen and known some of the people now that, you know, we work with directly. And, and I, again, I say our friends I've known for, you know, a, a healthy part of my whole life. So it's been really cool to have that life experience too, that speak to exactly what you're talking about, that it's, you know, it is a true community where people collaborate. They're not, you know, we're not competing. We're all, if anything, we're competing as a community to win as a community. We're not competing against each other. And yeah, I mean, that's why we get to do things like this, where we can connect and share and talk through some really serious things. And it's, and it's really a healthy dialogue and it's a good thing. So yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. We, you know, we were, we were putting our heads together because you, you talk about as a marketing specialist and as a membership specialist, some of the prominent themes, if you will, that have probably come to the surface. And I think the big one we, we agreed is certainly one of the things that are in the spotlight now is that member benefit program or what people might call affinity plans. And obviously, COVID has shined a spotlight on these um, but not just COVID, certainly that's the biggest spotlight that we can all connect to. From where you sit, what do you see as some of the biggest changes in this arena over the last year? I think that it's, there have been changes going on for a while when it comes to affinity programs or affinity plans or affinity activities, whatever you want to call it, partnerships, not sponsorship type partnerships or, or industry partnerships, but just partnerships and providing benefits for your members. It's been changing for a while, but I think that over the past year, it has made it, made it so that it's even more important now that what you are offering to your members and to your audiences is unique and is accessible because you can't have that generic offering anymore because people just aren't they have so many different options. They have so many different ways to get at different things. Um, and, and that's, and everything has become, I mean, one of the things with COVID and we've all seen this has be, everything has become more accessible. You know, the companies that have the technology, the companies that have the abilities are now making everything much more accessible where you don't have to go anywhere to do anything. And just the ease of use is so much higher now than it ever has been that associations need to keep up with that. And they need to make sure that they can compete even more so now with these for-profit entities that are marketing and offering similar programs and similar services. You know, that word that resonated when we initially kicked this around was exclusivity. That concept of exclusivity that I think clearly pre more of this, this domination of digital era, everything, I think associations certainly had an element of exclusivity, but like you just said, because, you know, whether it's the digital economy or just, you know, constant disruption, it's a lot harder, I guess, to have that, whether, whether it still exists, it may not feel like it still exists. And, and so that's also something that I'm sure, you know, really is, is something associations should, should wrestle with more. And, 
I'm sure that that can come in one of two areas, right? That can be a, a you know, is it a marketing communication thing or is it a really, you know, do we need to examine our offerings thing to see how competitive they still are? What do you think about, you know, kind of pivots in both of those two areas, right? Marketing and communication, as well as just the value propositions themselves. Well, I think that, that let, let's start with value proposition, because I think that that is the most important piece of it. You mentioned disruption, um, and I sort of said accessibility, and it's kind of the same. I know it sounds very different, but in, in ways we're talking about the same thing, because there have been different products and services that have come and disrupted what we typically normally do and normally see and use by making things that we aren't used to doing that much more accessible. I mean, and, and it and it has been exacerbated or it has been accelerated by COVID and people being at home. I mean, you think about it now, and I know this is not a great example because most associations are not going to provide door-to-door delivery, right? It's just, it's not going to happen. But to use the generic example that everybody knows, look what Amazon is doing. You know, it's, it's just now we run out of dish soap and I can have dish soap delivered to my front door by tomorrow, right? You could never do that before. And I think that some of these things that weren't really habits before are becoming more habitual because we've been doing it for a year. And grocery stores, who knows if people are going to keep going to grocery stores anymore? Who knows what's going to happen with retail? But the reason that I bring that up is that habits have changed. So we can't offer sort of generic things to our members that somebody else is offering. We have to have something that is unique. We have to have something that is exclusive. We have to have something that is truly valuable to them because lots of organizations, lots of companies are offering things that associations could offer. Um, When you and I were talking about this before, I mean, you kind of go back to the branded credit card. I don't know if associations do branded credit cards anymore, because if there is no value attached to it, why are you going to get a, a branded credit card? Unless you have proven your value to an individual for a long period of time. So then they're proud to use that credit card. I don't know if that affinity exists anymore. I know that sounds bad for the future of associations, but I just don't know if people sort of feel like, wow, you know, even as much as you and I say, this is my community, association space is my community. Do I want an association credit card or do I want to get airline miles or do I want to get 5% back? You know, and that's, that's just one example. There's so many different things. And I don't think that affinity programs are dead by any means at all. It just, it has to be something unique that is pertinent to your unique audience. It can't just be a generic item, a generic service, because why are they going to use you when they may be able to get a better deal somewhere else? And unique can mean lots of things. It could be something that you have negotiated special pricing, special added value, special benefits, whatever that might be, that can make it unique. But offering something that you can get at Costco or something that you can get through Sam's Club or through American Express, that's not unique. And people aren't going to make those decisions favorably or, or in your favor that often. So for most associations, most are smaller and they have limited resources. They can't spend the time and the money doing things that aren't going to bring in the return on investment. So you need to make it special and you need to know what that value is and what the value your members are looking for to have any chance of success. Well, and and that last point, I want to pull on that thread a little bit more. You just said you need to know what that value is. And and really, it seems like if anything, what COVID has done uh, in a very, very effective way, hopefully, is, is shine a light on that need to really you know, reconsider our brand, if you will, right? As, as, as I like to kind of say, and that, that market position of an association, especially for, you know, associations who had so much uh, tied into in-person engagement, which obviously a lot of people did, but, you know, even beyond that, just really, you know, what does it look like to be an association that represents fill in the blank, right? And what, what does that audience really now need and or want from a membership organization? And does that cause us to reconsider things, shift, 
maybe just make sure that we refine our messaging and our engagement strategy. Maybe we're not necessarily going to be doing anything different, maybe just through different mediums. But it, but it certainly, I think, has, has caused hopefully a lot of people to just take another look at all of that. How do you see that playing out? Because I think that you're, you know, when it comes to any kind of program, but especially a member benefit and affinity plan, if you don't get the brand right, I imagine the marketing and everything else won't fall into place very well. You need to look at it at a strategic level and you need to decide, all right, does this fit our brand? Does it not fit our brand? And by brand, I don't mean, does it fit our colors? Does it fit our logo? Does it fit our tagline? That's just a small piece of your brand. But is this the the benefit? Is this the value? Is this what our association stands for? And is this what we want to be known for? And it needs to fit under that umbrella. I mean, I think that you go, you could talk generically and say insurance programs, shipping discounts, things like that. They could be valuable and beneficial to every association as an affinity program, but you can get discount shipping on your own. You can get insurance plans on your own. You can do those sort of things, but for certain industries, if it fits within your brand and what you're trying to do, because it's, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole a little bit. And, and this is, this term is more used in the advertising world than, than really anywhere else, but you've got endemic and non-endemic advertising, right? And endemic meaning it goes to the core of your business. So an easy example is I used to work for a travel, a travel publication when I was at National Geographic, we did travel. So your endemic advertisers would be travel advertisers. It could be locations, it could be cruise lines, it could be airlines. Those are core to your business, right? But then you've got the non-endemic, which is just, we've got lots of people and as individuals, they use products, you know? So I've talked to so many groups and they're like, hey, we want to get advertisers like Microsoft. Well, why would Microsoft want to advertise with you over somebody else? Well, because we have people. Well, no, that, that, that's not the way it really works. You want to talk to me about people, talk to me about what TV reaches or talk to me about you know, what some of the major consumer publications reach. That, that's people. What you guys have is a small segment of people. And unless there's a real niche there, there's no hook. So you've got the endemic piece, and that's where I think that the associations can succeed. What is core to their audience? What does their audience need to function almost on a daily basis or at least on a consistent basis? So if you're looking at a manufacturing company and they're shipping large items, a shipping discount, a unique shipping discount could be a huge affinity program for them. And then that would fit underneath their brand. Of course, anybody they would partner with to work on that program, they need to do the vetting there too, right? You need to make sure that they have a positive reputation. You don't want to go with, I mean, it's funny because, and I know I'm kind of all over the place with this, but I just went on a trip last week. First time I've traveled in a long time. I had to rent a car and you look through there and not that there's anything wrong with some of these upstarts, but I'm not looking at these upstarts because I'm worried that it may not fit what I'm looking for. So I'm looking, you know, it hurts, Alamo budget, your, your normal top six or seven, whatever, whatever they might be. And then you look at these other ones, the same thing holds true for your association. If you come to people, let's just keep using shipping as an example. If you go to them and say, well, we're using, you know, ZLB company and everybody goes, who in the world is ZLB company? Why am I going to trust those guys with my business? So all across of it, across the board from a strategic level, all of your partners and all of your programs have to fit underneath the brand that you have created. And that has to be positive. It has to be professional. And so everything that you do around those affinity programs has to work. And oftentimes with affinity programs, and this is something you don't always have control over, they do a lot of the marketing. I mean, I've seen so many times where you partner with an affinity program or an affinity plan and associations don't often, don't always want to do the marketing. They want their partners to do the marketing. And so there you lose a little bit of control there. So it's, it, this goes back to what I was saying earlier about resources. You need to make sure who you partner with because you can only keep track of so much and stay on top of so much and truly, really fully control so much with your limited resources. You have to make sure that the groups that you're working with are strong and fit within the brand that you're trying to create. 
And so it all flows back to what is the right look and feel? What is the right brand? What is the right messaging? What is the right level of professionalism that you're looking for? So your members get the value and your brand is reinforced across the board. That last point, I think, really brought it all together really effectively because you're right. It, you know, you need to see the continuity through the entirety of it. I, you know, we, since we, as a, as a practice, help people look at affinity and we can help launch and bring the right parties to the table and then even manage programs, we kind of see a lot of it. And I think it's very interesting when we start to field requests or certain groups that come to us say, you know, we're thinking about X, Y, and Z. And some of the things that we really have to reinforce to them is, you know, we we really need you to understand what you're asking for too and what you're looking for. Because there's a lot of times we'll get a request where I think some associations think, well, you know, we're really attractive, but we're kind of just selling you our membership list. And then, like you said, you go ahead and, you know, make hay with it, whatever, and, you know, either send us a royalty or what have you. We're just kind of, you know, we've got all these, we've got a hundred thousand of these types of people that seem like they should buy your stuff, have at it, right? And and while maybe in the past, sometimes that was a lot more successful and effective, it's just not in this day and age. And, and so, yeah, that is really important to also understand who's on first, right? And then who's on second. And sometimes the ask of the organization itself might need to be a little bit more you know, we do, we, we certainly see a lot that comes to the financial services and the insurance lens more than other components. And there, they are, you know, they really do actually need a lot more data to even make you an offer, you know, and so, you know, sometimes just having names in a list and an email address won't get you anywhere. So it's very interesting, you know, just to really see all of that, that messaging, that consistency. And I really like how you said it. If the first brand domino doesn't fall the right way, really the rest of them is not going to work. When you, when you mentioned also kind of navigating and managing these plans based on someone's level of engagement at the association versus the partnership, how are you starting to see that change, especially since the pandemic has probably strained a lot of resources and, and with associations even potentially having to cut back staff? What are some things that you're seeing in that particular area that you would say either might be a cautionary tale or something that, you know, an association might want to at least do to improve things or manage things more effectively? I think it comes back to finding the right partners. And actually, it comes back in many ways to finding the right value, which will then lead you to the right partners. And and I feel like we keep sort of circling on the same thing, which is getting the right programs and services based on the needs of your members. And that's really what it all comes back to. I, you know, I know that sounds really simple, but it's true. You, you need to understand your membership more so now than ever. I think that's been true for a long time, but I, I, I don't know. I think that in some ways it's, it's marketers fault. And what I mean by that is marketers are getting very good at targeted marketing and nailing down people based on their behaviors, nailing down people based on characteristics that they have, all those kind of things. So groups that don't do that well or don't do that at all are going to struggle because you're just blasting away. You're, you're just sending stuff to the wrong people at the wrong time with the wrong offers. And ultimately, they're going to stop responding. So I, I, I get that there are associations don't always have the greatest tech in the world and they can't do what Amazon does and they can't do what some of these other companies do. But the more you understand or the better you understand your members, the more likely you are to choose the right products and services to market to them. And then the more likely you are to be successful. And to, to bring that back to your question, if you are offering the right products and services, you're not going to be spread so thin, right? It gives you a way to say, all right, well, this one doesn't fit in our wheelhouse anymore. And this one does, and this one does. So instead of having 10 or 12, I mean, I remember, I haven't looked in a while, but I remember when I used to look on some websites and it would say, you get member discounts. There would be a list of like 25 different companies and it was everything. I mean, it was everything you could ever want from rental cars to office supplies to insurance to, you know, just name it. And they had it because there were companies that would offer that to travel. Um, but ultimately, as we started this conversation with, 
if your members aren't coming to you for that, it's probably not worth your time to dedicate the resources to it. There are lots of companies out there that will partner with you. And Brian, you probably can talk to a little bit of this as well. There are plenty of companies that'll partner with you, but are they really gonna give you what you want? Are they really gonna pay full attention? Or are they gonna send you some brochures and say, hey, you know what, mail these out a couple of times a year and include it in your email marketing and mention that on your website and, and you get 25 bucks a month, 50 bucks a month, you know, in royalty or whatever, which, if you have the resources to support that, go for it. But I think it waters down your message. It dilutes your value proposition. So and you know, sort of my tale of caution is do what fits your membership. Do what is going to get a decent ROI. Don't just do so that you can add another benefit, another perk to your list so that when somebody looks at it, they go, wow, there used to be 99 benefits. Now there's 100. I'm really going to maintain my membership because they're not going to. That one extra little thing, which they may or may not find valuable because it's not differentiated amongst the competition or any different than the competition, is not gonna be what's gonna keep them. And I think there, in many ways, there are two goals with your affinity plans. Uh, Sometimes it gets flipped and I don't know why it gets flipped, but sometimes it does. One is royalty, right? You wanna earn a little extra money. And the other is loyalty. You want them to maintain their membership. The loyalty piece should come first. The royalty piece should come second. But sometimes associations go, wow, we want non-news revenue. So how much of a royalty can we negotiate? What's the highest we can go? And hopefully it will impact our our loyalty, our retention. But you, you need to look at it from both perspectives, not just one or the other. And I'm so glad that you you put that in the right order because that's, honestly, Scott, that's that's what we spend a lot of time talking to people about and it's the area where I think I don't I don't want to say a lot of people get hung up on, but but you're right. It's it's recognizing that hey, you know we can have we can we can have great conversations about royalties, projections, revenue estimates, all that other stuff. But if we haven't gotten that real member value proposition right, that loyalty brand component right, most people, especially in this kind of world where the digital consumer now has so many tools and, and they kind of really see things for what they are now more than ever before. You don't want to be doing things where your members start to feel like they're sold stuff because that can hurt more than anything else, regardless of how much money it can potentially make you. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the program you're considering is wrong per se, but it certainly means that you need to make sure that that, that marketing and communication piece happens right. And also that there's a commitment. I think that that's another thing that I know our practice has seen um, that we try to really reinforce is that re- making sure that we understand that if you're gonna launch something, you need to be committed to it for at least, you know, an ex- semi-extended period of time, if not the long-term. You're not trying to just do something, you know, that blows in, blows up, and then blows out, right? You know, you're you're making an investment in adding value to membership, that should be a long-term commitment and proposition. And so I think that's another time when, you know, as we're helping somebody launch something, we say, look, you know, you, you can't just assess this as a success or failure in a six or 12 month window, especially if it's new, it doesn't matter how good it is. You need to have a longer term dynamic because it may take time for that snowball to start to roll downhill more effectively and before you really see things come to fruition. So yeah, I certainly appreciate that order and that hierarchy. And, and I think, you know, if, if, if I'm picking up also on another theme that we're kicking around, it sounds like certainly now is the time to be zooming out and at least triaging what you've got, because maybe now is the time to trim, you know, some things that really are just kind of, you know, in that, I call it miscellaneous category, right? It's kind of like you look at it and you're like, oh, well, that's just here, but that doesn't really you know, it doesn't move the needle at all. Maybe there are just some things that don't need to be in the miscellaneous category. Yeah, I've always found it curious or interesting, whichever way you want to describe it, that once, I mean, I agree with you that when you launch a product or a service, it needs to stay around for a while. You need to give it a shot. But oftentimes what I have seen is once it's there, it's there forever. And, 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 and it never goes away. So you've got some things that are just on autopilot and this goes to marketing too, right? Because you know, I know you've mentioned a few times marketing and communications and 
and and and and making sure that your messaging is is on the right track. I've seen often many times where groups partner and as we mentioned, they're not doing the marketing. The partner is doing the marketing. And it just keeps on happening. And what it does is it adds more noise to the virtual and real inboxes that people have. And so it also diminishes the other messaging and the other communications that the association is trying to get in front of their members. So it is important to trim every once in a while. I, I mean, I know in my history, I've worked with some organizations where they just wait for that check. That's all they do. It's like, all right, cool. How much do we get this month? How much did we get last month? How much did we get last quarter? And unfortunately, they're not even sometimes not even doing a comparison to say, all right, what was it last year this time versus what is it this year this time? It's just, all right, this is free money. You know, it's like we just made 500 bucks. We made 5 million bucks. I don't know what it might be, but, you know, we just made that. That's great. But what happens? Who's watching it if it's trending up or trending down? And then who's digging into why is it trending up or why is it trending down? There could be industry trends, which may change some things. But oftentimes, it's a marketing thing that could be changing some things. And is your partner using or are you allowing your partner to use some of the most current tactics to recruit? I mean, you think about just one example, like with retargeting and things like that. I don't know if associations are using retargeting for their affinity programs. Could they? No doubt about it. You know, get people who come to your website to see an ad about your, let's just keep using the shipping plan example, about your shipping plan, about your shipping program, then let that chase them around for a few days, right? Let that happen. But in my experience, that's not typically or traditionally what the um, affinity partners are using. They're doing little flyers that you can insert into mailings. They're doing emails, of course, because email is free and easy. Um, and I say that sort of sarcastically because email is not free. And it shouldn't be easy. If you're doing it right, it's not going to be easy. But that's what they do because somebody can just hit a button and it goes. But who's being creative about this? You know, I, I would I would recommend instead of having 10 to 15 programs, unless you have 10 or 15 programs that are really, really strong and are doing really, really well and really, really fit the needs of your of your market, go with a few and really rock them, really just knock it out of the ballpark, you know, and do everything you can to market them and do everything you can to promote them and do everything you can to make sure that your messaging is on target. And it's it's being perceived as a benefit of yours, um, not just another program that they can offer a discount, get, they can get a discount on where if they went in, went on Costco online, or if they went to American Express online or somewhere, they could probably find something similar. You want it to be branded as yours. You want people to know that it's yours and it's in partnership with you. So your messaging needs to be right. And you're going to have a much better chance of success if you have a smaller number of really successful ones or really pertinent ones, as opposed to a lot of them, because you just can't pay attention to all of them and you can't give them the attention that they need. And that's such a good point because, yeah, I mean, if, if you're choosing to work smarter, not just harder then yeah, you realize that the value of your time, your commitment and your energy and your engagement really needs to be optimized. And, you know, it may not be able to wrap its arm around 15 things, but maybe, you know, maybe five, six, who knows, eight, whatever, whatever that core that can really be an engine and also be a reinforcement of your value proposition and your membership. Um, and I think that that's, where I've seen a lot of and had a lot of interesting conversations is, you know, forget what you're offering to your members or what they can, what you're pulling off the shelf for them for a second, you know, has, has the industry that you represent changed and what are the major impacts that COVID's had there? If you're a, a professional membership organization, what's gone on in the industry? And maybe, maybe it's not that you're going to offer something different. Maybe it's how, you're connecting that value prop to that audience because they've had a shift in their life. They've had a shift in their business. So they're, they're seeing things differently because they've had to make their own pivots. And I think that that's the other part, like you're saying, you know, sometimes, well, I, I bet a lot of times better marketing is always an answer that solves a lot of good problems, but um, you know, really being cognizant of your audience and being able to come alongside them in a more meaningful way, rather than just saying, we're this awesome association that has these awesome things. And if we kind of 
get the message in front of you enough times, it's going to resonate. I, I think that some of that kind of, you know, buckshot approach doesn't resonate anymore, especially where consumers are just a lot more adept. And like you said, they're the noise and, you know, there's a lot of different ways we go about making these decisions. So I really want to see from my membership value, whatever I'm paying to be a part of, that it, that it understands my needs and enhances my, you know, my life, my practice, my industry, whatever that is. I think that that's a, a you know, one of those key shifts that uh, is starting to, you know, really resonate across a lot of the landscape. Yeah, it's, it's very easy these days to get lost in the shuffle. There's, there's just so much going on and there's so much being emailed out and there's just so much as you would call it noise. And so it really is important, number one, for you to be a trusted resource to your, to your members. Um, I think that you and I are both very dedicated to an association and we do a lot there, but still we don't read every message that comes across because sometimes they send too many messages or sometimes you go, that's a nice to have, not a need to have. And so I'm going to read that and then you just don't get around to it. And if you and I feel that way to something that we volunteer for, that we've been members for for a long time, that in your case, your father has been a member of, you know, I can only imagine what somebody who's not as dedicated to an association might think. So you need to be really careful and almost conservative about what you're offering and, and how you're marketing, because it is very easy to just kind of get lost. I don't know, even know how to really describe it. Is it a COVID-related thing or a non-COVID-related thing, but I do believe that we have all formed some habits over the last 12 months that were different in many ways than they ever were before. And so like the switch got flipped because it really did. COVID shut us down and things changed. We didn't have a choice, right? But when things get more back to, quote, how they used to be or normal, that there's not that switch that's going to flip again, right? people are going to have to break these habits and there's not going to be like a wall that they're running into with COVID. So is that going to mean that people are going to continually be unsubscribing to things that they find less useful? Because that's what people are doing now. I mean, over the last 12 months, people, many people have had time on their hands. So when emails come in, they're actually looking at them and unsubscribing from them because they go, that's useless to me when before they just go delete, 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 because they had two seconds to deal with it and they just didn't want to deal with it anymore. So it's going to be, I think it's going to be even more important that as uh, for marketers to really focus on what people need to know, and then definitely mix in some of the nice to know, but really focus on the need and the stuff that is driven by what they know about people and know about the needs of these people so that they will actually realize and the, the, the messages that they're sending and the offers that they're sending will really resonate with them. And then they need to find the right methodology to get it in front of them, the right tactic. Because just sending, 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 and hoping that somebody might see it at some point is just not going to work, um, or it's not going to be as effective as it used to be. And that's, that's such a good way to kind of get us to this last point. What do you think is the opportunity for associations specific to affinity as we move into this post-COVID era? If there's one, two opportunities, you'd say, hey, here's a cool thing that we can capitalize on. What might that look like? I think it is that technology has gone full speed ahead. And there are so many more different technological options now at affordable prices that don't require a ton of resources that we can take advantage of. So I still think that we're not going to be Amazon. We're not going to be able to do one-to-one marketing like, like a company like that is able to do, but we are able to target a lot more. And we are also are able to get our hands on a lot more data, which we can then use to validate the types of products and services that we want to offer. And the other piece of that is if we don't have that data oftentimes our partners will have that higher level of technology so they can provide that data. And then we can base our decisions on who we market to and what products and services we offer based off of that. I mean, I think that for many, many years, affinity partners have been willing to just kind of go along with us and say, all right, cool. We're making a little bit of money. We're not putting a lot of time and effort into this. We'll kind of do it. But if they're smart, they're not doing that anymore. And so for you as an association to work with your partner to analyze what's been going on and to see who your 
membership is, or actually in that case, who your users are within your membership, it'll give you a much better picture of what you should be offering and what you shouldn't be offering. So I would think that technology from a marketing perspective, technology from a data perspective are both things that we can definitely take advantage of. And we're going to have to take advantage of it because the level of competition has definitely been raised and it, ch it changes every day. I mean, the good and the bad about having technology be so accessible is you can do some great things, but, and I know this is an exaggeration, but almost anybody can do great things. I mean, these, some of these software programs are being created by just random people who all of a sudden pop up and it's incredibly powerful and it's incredibly useful. And that in many ways either will help an association or it will hurt an association, but we need to stay on top of that and make sure that we're nimble enough and, and knowledgeable enough to be able to do what we should be doing to get the right messages and the right products and services in front of our members so that we can keep our value proposition high keep their investment high, and then therefore keep our ROI high. I love it. What a great way to, to close that out. And uh, I know we could probably go on for hours, but to wrap up, why don't you, uh, A, make sure everybody knows how to get in touch with you and any final shout outs that you want to make. Let's, uh, let's hear it. I don't have a ton of shout outs, but I'll shout out to my, my association community. And I, I'm glad that you were able to listen to this and my California, my new California association community and the ASAE community. So, you know, I've been doing in this world for 25 years. So I shout out to all of you guys. So excited about that. And then you can find me. Well, there's actually a nuclear scientist from what I understand. I was going to say you could probably just Google Scott Oser or Scott Oser Associates. But my Google alerts always gives me this Russian nuclear scientist guy. And I'm like, that's not me. Can't you guys figure out that that's not me? But I guess Google is smart in a lot of ways, but they're not smart enough to figure out that I'm not a nuclear scientist that lives in Russia. Um, but you can find me at scottoserassociates.com. On Twitter, I'm Scott Oser. On LinkedIn, I'm Scott Oser. And then my email is scott at scottoserassociates if anybody wants to reach out directly with any questions or anything I can help with or just to chat. I'm happy to do that as well. And, and the hashtag, not the nuclear scientist. Exactly. <laughs> that is definitely not me. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you. Appreciate you coming on and uh, look forward to seeing you hopefully in the not too distant future. That would be great. The information provided in this podcast is not intended as specific tax or legal advice and may not be relied upon for purposes of avoiding any federal tax penalties. The Haney Company, its employees and representatives are not authorized to give tax or legal advice. Individuals are encouraged to seek advice from their own tax or legal counsel. Individuals involved in the estate planning process should work with an estate planning team, including their own personal legal or tax counsel. The information provided here does not constitute personal financial advice, but is meant as the conveyance of information for educational purposes only. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Past performance is not indicatory of future returns. Guarantees are backed by the claims-paying ability of the insurer. Brian Haney is a registered representative of Coastal Equities Incorporated and an investment advisory representative of Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated. Investment advisory services are offered through Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated, and securities are offered through Coastal Equities Incorporated, member FINRA SIPC.